tuning in with Care Asia, bringing human stories to life. Welcome to another episode of Tuning In with KR Asia. I'm your host, AJ Cortese. In this episode, we are excited to have Tiffany Yu with us to discuss the empowerment of people with disabilities in the workforce. Tiffany is an entrepreneur, advocate, and founder of Diversability, a social enterprise that is trying to change the stigma around disability through the power of community. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us today. And we kind of want to get right into it and talk about when it comes to people with disabilities and employment, what are the largest obstacles you've encountered running Diversability and drilling down onto that? Would you say that larger enterprises are more rigid and less accepting to people with disabilities than maybe some startups might be? That is a great question. So as we're recording this, October in the U.S. is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. And this year marks 75 years of the U.S. government kind of recognizing this month and the need to really acknowledge the talents that disabled people can bring into workspaces. So there is an Accenture report that came out in 2018 that highlights the business case for disability inclusion. So I'll just include three of the top level highlights. For companies that did prioritize disability inclusion and disability employment and disability support, they had 28% higher revenue, double the net income, and 30% higher economic profit margins. So what I think is really interesting here is Back in the day, it was always around the social good or the moral case for hiring disabled people, right? Oftentimes it might sit under a corporate social responsibility initiative. But now we actually have the data to show that it will really make a positive impact on your bottom line, which kind of raises the question, now that we know that there is a business case for hiring disabled people, why is the unemployment rate in the US still over 60%? and has been sitting at over 60% for decades. And really what I think it comes down to is as much as we can try to upskill disabled people, like I have both an undergraduate degree and a master's degree, and there are many disabled people that have multiple master's degrees, there is still just so much disability stigma and discrimination that exists that is kind of subconscious or unconscious, I guess or maybe conscious. (laughs) And a big part of it, you know, and then you ask the question around whether or not larger corporations are more rigid. And interestingly enough, I actually think that while startups and smaller organizations can be more agile, that's actually where it's harder to create processes to prevent bias. And so oftentimes I'll have conversations that are really informal with some people who are entrepreneurs or startup founders. And they tell me that when they think about hiring a disabled person, they think about liability. And oftentimes the additional access costs that they'll need to cover. And I think what's interesting is that disability is so diverse, right? So even for me as someone who has a paralyzed arm, um, I don't actually use any assistive devices. So is hiring, like, what are the additional access costs that are needed for hiring someone like me? And I think that's where we really need to, I think, start to be more critical as to how we're thinking about disability hiring and disability employment. Because anytime you decide to hire anybody, right, you are taking a little bit of a risk. That's why they say it's better to try and retain your employees 
then think about the switching and onboarding and recruiting costs of bringing on someone new. So how can we incorporate any of the risk that it takes to hire anyone with a disability hire as well? So those are some of my initial thoughts. I think that so many of the currently existing initiatives right now are really around upskilling and preparing disabled people to enter the workforce. But I think we really need to flip the script and really take a critical lens at what's happening right now and say, we really need to call out or call in what's happening on the recruitment side with our hiring managers and the bias that they're putting into their recruitment processes. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So on that note, what initiatives and strategies have been effective in kind of reducing the bias on the corporate side or the hiring side? Yeah. So it's kind of like a chicken and an egg issue or opportunity, I guess I'll say. (laughs) On the opposite of an issue is an opportunity, right? And so I love this phrase of like, you can't be what you can't see. So there are kind of like two things that are happening right now. One is in order for disabled people to really see the abundance of opportunity and be able to pursue their career dreams, we need to be able to see people who look like us in those roles. What that means for corporates is that you need to hire disabled people and you need to retain them and you need to promote them and you need to uplift and amplify them and provide opportunities for those people who are disabled who are employed within your company to really feel like they're adding value. What that looks like for me, a couple companies I point to, but you know, it's interesting. I mean, I would make this parallel to the work that many of us are doing along our own anti-racism journeys, which is there's always more work to be done, even if you're doing a good job. So two examples that come to mind or three examples, I guess. So I live in San Francisco and where Silicon Valley is here. And so I look at Microsoft and I look at Salesforce and I look at Google and Facebook. And these are large tech companies that have the processes in place to make sure that they have a recruiter who focuses on disability inclusion, or they have a chief accessibility officer who is disabled, or they have an office of accessibility or are looking to build more human capital and talent in that space. And so the fact that those companies, like I can name off people who are disabled at all levels within those various companies who are very happy in their role. And it looks like, you know, they're being provided opportunities for visibility and advancement uh, within those organizations. That to me highlights, oh, if I ever decided I wanted to go back into corporate, I'd want to really work at a place that I feel like is really amplifying and prioritizing disability inclusion. So on the other end of that, right, is the question around pipeline, like where do we find disability talent? And oftentimes I'll point to, I mean, there are a couple really great organizations that work specifically in disability employment. There's one called Disability In. There's an initiative right now called the Valuable 500, which is around getting CEOs or C-level officers to commit to taking at least one act of disability inclusion and making a public statement about it. There's, there are organizations like Lime Connect which is initially how I actually found my pathway to my first internship and my first full-time job offer. There are also a couple of these like more flexible work opportunity places. There's one called Chronically Capable. There's another called Flexibility, which are all, if you're looking for more flexible work opportunities, you can sign up there. So those are just a couple of examples. You know, I oftentimes will come into these disability employment conversations from my own personal experience. Like I always think that lived experience trumps everything. And so my first job was working in investment banking at Goldman Sachs. 
And even during my interview process, what I tried to do was I looked at the company's annual report and I looked at their values and I saw that they had a statement that said that they really prioritize diversity. You know, and I think probably for a lot of large companies, you'll see some similar wording. And I brought that into my interview process because the thing is I have a physical visible disability it's the elephant in the room if it's not brought up, right? Like unless the candidate brings it up, it's like legally, I think there are some sensitivities around asking about anything like that. And so I brought it up and I said, I see that this company values diversity and I have a disability and I carry around other intersectional identities with me as well. And so that is what attracted me to this working on this company. And then even when I started working there full time, I would start doing a lot of informational interviews with a lot of other students with disabilities who are really curious about if they could work at a place like Goldman or if they could work at finance or if they could handle the workload or, or if the office would be accommodating for them. And what was really interesting to me is like probably within my first month of being there, you could sign up to get like an ergonomic assessment of your workstation. And the person who did my ergonomic work assessment knew about my paralyzed arm and asked me if I needed speech to text technology or like other things that would help me put less strain on one hand. And I thought that that was a really interesting invitation because I have always, and many of us who are disabled, like we live in a non-disabled world. And so we have found that like we've needed to adapt ourselves or like life hack our way to figure out how to make environments adapted to us. And the fact that this person at Goldman in this ergonomic space was asking or offering that they had all of these options available that can make my space more adaptive to me, just like made me feel more welcome there. So that's just kind of like a really personal example of that. And then the second example I'll bring up is I worked at Bloomberg right after Goldman. And while I was there, they were in the process of kind of launching and scaling their employee resource groups. And there wasn't one for disability. And even having only been there for a few months, they invited me and a couple other employees with disabilities to come together and start to envision what a disability employee resource group would look like at Bloomberg. And I think like, especially being so early on in my career to have that level of visibility to like pitch the chief diversity officer on why this community needed to exist. And now I left Bloomberg in 2014 to see Bloomberg. I think Bloomberg was one of the first signatories of the Valuable 500, like signing on to take on disability inclusion. And to see the president of Bloomberg speak about their employee resource group and getting that off the ground and highlighting some of the employees, I think really just felt like a win for me. So those are some examples that come from my own personal experience. Yeah, thank you. That was very insightful, Tiffany. You touched on the talent pipeline for people with disabilities, and I kind of want to talk more about the relationship between traditional educational institutions and empowering young people with disabilities looking towards their career. So you mentioned many organizations, but none of those were kind of your traditional educational institutions. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe talk about what those kind of institutions are doing or not doing for people with disabilities? Mm. So I will say that Lime Connect, which is one of the organizations that I did mention, offers a fellowship program, I believe, for sophomores with disabilities. Um, and as part of the fellowship, they'll 
support you through, you know, your internship process. Of course, no guarantees of placement, but they'll provide you with the community and confidence and other soft and hard skills to be able to move through that. So one of the interesting things before Lime Connect had this fellowship program, this is also a personal anecdote. And I don't know how relevant these personal anecdotes are, but I actually did not identify as having a disability until maybe about 10 years after I had been disabled. And I can remember the turning point was in 2007. I was a sophomore at the time, and I saw a flyer that was posted on my university's career center for an info session with Lime Connect, which is the organization that I just mentioned. So I went and it was like a really small room. There were maybe four of us there. And I had never talked about my disability before. I wasn't sure if like having a paralyzed arm. And that's one of the things that like happens within the disability community is that I think we have so few visible examples of what disability looks like that I wasn't sure of not being able to use one of my arms counted. And it's like, if you are questioning whether or not your condition counts as a disability and it impacts some aspect of how you live your life, Chances are you probably do have a disability. And even in my work at Diversability, we give everyone the space to self-identify. And some people may never get to that point because I think there still is just so much stigma that people think that disability is a bad thing. And for me, I really want to reframe the narrative that like I'm successful because of my disability. I'm not successful despite my disability. I have not overcome my disability. Like I'm still very much disabled. So that's a little bit of a sidebar. But anyway, so I went to this Lime Connect info session. There were only four of us there. Lime Connect at the time was hosting networking events with their corporate partner. So I went to one of these Lime events and it was hosted with all of the DC area universities. So like American, University of Maryland, Gallaudet, Howard, et cetera, a GW. I have to mention GW because both of my parents went there. I went to Georgetown. So I went to this networking event and it was the first time that I just felt there's a term that was coined by someone named Mia Mingus, who is at the forefront of disability justice called access intimacy. And access intimacy, in my own words, is this idea that you can show up to a place and you don't need to ask for permission to be there. You just know that your access needs are going to be met. So when I showed up, so I'm a left-handed handshaker because my right hand is paralyzed. And I was always terrified of networking events because I'm a left-handed handshaker and there's not enough time in that first 30 seconds of making an impression to explain to you that I got into a car accident and I have a paralyzed arm and don't worry, it doesn't hurt. And here are all the things I am going to add to your workplace. And so I went to this networking event hosted by Lime and I felt what access intimacy felt like for the first time. I was going around left hand handshaking with all of the recruiters not even explaining my disability, but just knowing that every candidate, every student who showed up in that space showed up because they had some disability. And no one was disclosing, only if they felt like it. You know, maybe it would get to a point where if I felt comfortable enough with the recruiter, I'd be like, hey, I'm a left-handed handshaker. I have a paralyzed arm. Like, I'm curious how to navigate networking events. That may have been a very common question that would be running through my mind because there's always like a level of awkwardness, right? If you do some things differently. And so I actually think that by having my university partner with an organization like Lime Connect, and I know Lime Connect has a presence in the US and in Canada now, it just really allowed me the opportunity to become more comfortable with networking. And you could almost say that there's like so much about the recruiting process 
that is ableist. Say you communicate differently or say your body, in my case, like I don't shake hands the same way that others do. That reinforces a lot of internalized ableism to like want to cover or like not want to show up in these spaces, which ultimately reinforces a cycle that we're not putting ourselves out there and in positions that can allow us to live with dignity and with autonomy. So I will say, which I guess is to your point, that at my university, we did have like a disability resources center that was more so if you needed accommodation in your courses, you could go there. But I think that because my career center did know to partner with an organization like Lime Connect, it really did create space for me to get to know their partner organization. And Lime Connect's partner organizations, I mean, at the time, both Goldman and Bloomberg were partners. I think like Target, Microsoft, Bank of America. I mean, don't quote, you can go to the website to see what their latest, their latest partners are. But at least for me, having studied finance in college, I definitely thought that that was in alignment. And I know that, you know, if you want to work somewhere else and Lime isn't partnered with them, right? I think Lime is only partnered with large corporations, then that's navigating the process on your own. And so I think the other thing I do want to highlight is that I think we really need just a little bit of disruption in the recruitment process in general, of course, right? I think it's just unpleasant for anyone, disability or not. And so it's almost like when you add another layer of disability, it's just like, adding more gas to the fire, I think is the metaphor. And so I just know that I was an ambitious student who had big dreams and aspirations for my career. And if I hadn't discovered Lyme, I was still pushing through my own discomfort and awkwardness around the recruitment process just to show up. And I feel like half the battle is showing up. And part of the narrative that we are fed as disabled people is that sometimes the expectations are set so low for us that it's like okay not to show up and i want to say it's okay not to show up if like you really don't feel like you're ready but for me i just felt like i needed a little bit of tough love and like a little bit of what we do at diversibility is like a little bit of that tough love pushing because I know that we can accomplish so much more than what the media and our external society is telling us we're capable of. Right. A lot of times empowering people is just giving them that bit of confidence that maybe they couldn't generate themselves for whatever reason. 100%. The other thing I'll say, actually, this happens. My final year at Georgetown is actually the year that I came up with the idea for diversibility. And really the idea for diversibility is, wow, I feel really socially excluded and isolated in my disability experience. What would it look like to root myself in a disability community? And I've been able to see little inklings of that through my experience by working with Lime Connect and getting to meet other students, even if none of them are George in the DC area. And so I ended up applying for a grant called the Reimagine Georgetown Grant. And my proposal was to launch diversibility And if this campus was really about celebrating diversity, where was disability represented among that? So we ended up receiving a $500 grant and $500 in the whole grand scheme of things does not go very far. It's probably like buying food for one event or like booking sign language interpreters or something. But what I think was really priceless was the fact that someone else believed in me and my idea. And I think that's the reason why diversibility has been successful. And I think it's almost like confidence comes first. I mean, of course, the financial capital is needed, but it's like, I need that confidence first to even like be able to go out and ask for financial support as well. So I just wanted to share that little bit of tidbit, which like isn't necessarily employment related. And this is another reason why I think I do want to highlight support around educational institutions is that the other thing I learned as a disabled person 
was like, I just failed so much. Like being disabled gave me permission to fail. And I think having the support system of an educational institution to say, hey, I have this idea to launch this club. Can I get like access to a grant for food for a launch event? Or can I get access to classroom space or like supplies? You know, it's like you're in a little bit of like a container that allows you space to fail. And then it's interesting kind of like moving out into the real world where I feel like stakes are higher, especially in this digital environment. What I often tell people is like, we need to give people the permission, the space to fail, because I feel like in today's environment, sometimes we're like a little bit less forgiving, but it's also like, sometimes people are just unaware. If I think about language that people use these days, a lot of it is actually quite ableist and perpetuates stigma around disability. So like oftentimes I'll see headlines about myself that say, look at how much this woman has achieved despite her disability. That again is perpetuating like my disability is a bad thing, right? Or the COVID-19 pandemic has paralyzed our economy. And so it's almost like when we use disability terms figuratively like that, the thing is, is like, I have paralysis. To me, my paralysis is a neutral thing is like a diagnosis. And if you're saying that our economy is paralyzed, like what are you trying to say about people who have paralysis? Anyway, things like that. I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent there, but I'll pause there. No, it's okay. Really, your personal anecdotes really are so relevant and really insightful. So I kind of want to zoom out for a little bit. We've spoken about the current situation in the US and a lot of American companies. For example, in China, where I'm usually based, there's definitely less of an understanding and a sensitivity towards inclusion for people with disabilities. So can you talk a little bit about Diversability's kind of global mission and how it sees the situation maybe outside of the U.S.? Sure. So I do want to highlight, so my dad was Taiwanese and my mom is a refugee from the Vietnam War. And this is where intersectionality really comes into play. And intersectionality, if I haven't defined it, It's a term that it actually was coined in the 1980s, but has become really popular these days. And it's the compounding effect of what happens when you have multiple oppressed identities. So for me, that includes being a woman, it includes being a person of color, it includes being disabled. In certain scenarios, it could be my age of being on the younger side. And so the reason why I bring up that I'm the daughter of Asian immigrants is that I understand what it means to be a disabled person and Asian, and I understand what it means to be a woman and Asian, you know, and the hierarchy and the traditional views that still exist there. What I want to say there and what I want to highlight is that I have aspects of my own identity, like my Asian cultural background, that discriminate against other parts of my identity. And the reason why I want to bring that up is that I acknowledge that outside of the U.S., People don't see disability the way I do, you know, which is why I think I'm so firm and strong in my belief that disability is magic and disability is a generative force and disability is an identity to be proud of and not a problem to be fixed. So much of what I see that was instilled in me mainly by my mom was that I needed to be fixed that disability means that there's something wrong, right? And you talk about being based in China, you want to avoid shame to the family at all costs. And so I think that I want to acknowledge that I come into this space with a very US-centered perspective. I also want to acknowledge that, you know, I studied abroad in China, but like I've never lived there for long amounts of time. And I don't want to be prescriptive about how other places of the world should be. 
All of that said, one of the initiatives that DiverseAbility launched in July of this year was what we call the D30 Disability Impact List. And we put out a global call for disability leaders who were impactful in their local geographies. And we received almost 400 nominations. And I think we actually do have one honoree who is based in China. And I ended up interviewing on my podcast, one of our selection committee members about what his experience was like. And I tried to even have our selection committee be global. We had someone from Saudi Arabia, we had someone from the Bahamas and someone from Thailand. But I also acknowledged like we didn't have anyone from Latin America. You know, it's always interesting with these things because it's like, okay, even though this was global, who are we still missing, right? Who is still not at the table? But one of the things that one of our selection committee members said, his name's Alex Locust, he said, it was really fascinating for me to read the nominations because it made me realize and it made me need to be more sensitive to the fact that not everyone is waving their disability pride flags proudly or their disability identity flags proudly, right? And so how can we be more sensitive to different geographies who might operate under different models that might still be what we call the charity model or the tragedy model or the moral model and aren't yet kind of sitting in more of like an identity empowerment pride-based model around disability. So all of that said, one of the things that we realized is that everyone who was nominated and those 30 who were ultimately selected for our D30 disability impact list was that these people are serving as role models or what Alex and Laverne Cox and I are now calling possibility models for so many disabled people who just don't know what opportunities are out there and available for them. And one of the other projects that I run is called the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter. And what we do is a bunch of us with disabilities come together and contribute about $100 each month to create a $1,000 grant that goes to disability projects. A lot of this is inspired by that Reimagine Georgetown grant that I received because $1,000, of course, doesn't go that far. But, but it's interesting to see what projects we fund in the U.S. and in developed countries versus the ones that we have funded on the African continent or in Ecuador or in other places. So I think like a concrete example of that could be here in the U.S., we funded a lot of Black and disabled initiatives to amplify Black voices within the disability community or, you know, support some of the Black Lives Matter protests that are happening and access needs around that. At the same time, we have also funded art skills projects in Uganda or providing feminine menstrual products for women with disabilities in Zimbabwe. And so I think I'm acknowledging, first of all, money equals money. No matter where we are in the world, disabled people need support is different what it looks like. And so the reason why I bring that up is I think it is not because I'm so U.S. centric. I can be very bold in how I see my disability identity and how I feel about my disability narrative and my story. And there are clients and corporations that we work with that ascribe to that progressive approach. But part of the beauty of being in the disability community is the wide spectrum of perspectives that exist within it. And this is part of what keeps me going as well as like, I'll say something like exactly what I told you about the economy being paralyzed is I've gotten pushback on that before by other people being like, oh, but paralyzed by fear is like an idiom that is just like used and people understand what that means. 
And at the same time, I'm like, well, that's exactly what we need to unlearn, right? <laughs> but it's become so ingrained in like how we speak about things that that in itself is causing harm. So taking a little bit of a step back, what I was trying to say is that I think with the initiatives that both what we're doing at Diversibility, we're just literally with our D30 list and the community we're building is how can we amplify just great people who are doing work rather than being prescriptive and going into their local geographies and saying, this is what should be done, right? And then at the same time with Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter, it's about how can we fund the people who are so close to the issue at hand and already doing incredible work with just a little bit of capital. And of course, I know a thousand US dollars in, you know, we haven't funded anything in China, but like in some of these countries that are developing goes a really long way. So honestly, even when I look at, I started Diversibility in 2009 and Awesome Foundation came into being in 2017. If I look at the slate of different disability projects that I am doing, I probably spend the least amount of time on the Awesome Foundation disability chapter, but I just feel like our impact just continues to amplify and that part feels really good, right? Because with Diversibility, it's all about community building. It's all about changing like hearts and minds through like one conversation at a time, which isn't necessarily scalable, but I know it's impactful for everyone who touches our work while like giving $1,000 to someone who's already doing really great work, like just helps them take whatever they're doing to the next level. And that feels good too. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really nuanced description and kind of speaks to the global scale that you guys are tackling at Diversibility. And like you said, it keeps you going. And I can imagine because there's really just boundless opportunities to provide social good for people. So that was really interesting to hear about. I want to finish up with a question about the pandemic. And so what kind of impact do you think the pandemic induced remote work revolution has had on employment opportunities for people with disabilities? I'm thinking, does it potentially remove some appearance-based stigmas towards those with disabilities or how would you describe any changes? Yes. So that is a great question. I feel very hopeful that disabled people have been advocating for virtual work environments or remote work or flexible hours for forever. And now we're seeing it happen because of a pandemic. And if it took a pandemic for us to really, what I call like universalize, I probably made that word up. I don't, <laughs> to universalize <laughs> access needs. And what I mean by that is now whenever we go into a Zoom call, like even you and I on the Zoom call, I ask like, hey, is it going to be voice only or is it going to be video? You know, when things are video, it adds like a little bit of an extra eye strain, of course, you know, and I think is like that feeling of being on in a screen. Access needs could also be a parent who has a partner at home who also has work calls at the same time. It could be someone who has a pet who has a dog barking, it could be back to the parent, it could be the parent with the kid at home who has questions about their homework or needs to be homeschooled, right? So that's what I mean by we have, like now we ask everyone what their access needs are. It could be someone who needs to have their video off because their broadband isn't super strong. You know, it could be, especially in a lot of these Zoom calls we're having now, like someone freezes halfway through, 
we tell them like, hey, your video froze, would you mind repeating that? I think we're seeing an evolution. And this is what I talk about a lot with what happens when you design with a disability at the center, because now what we're seeing with this like pandemic lens is now we're asking everyone what their access needs are. Like, hey, it's okay if you need to ask someone to repeat what they said because their video froze, right? Now we're having a universal experience of what it looks like to have some kind of barrier, which is we're not able to meet in person right now if we're not essential workers. So that's what I feel hopeful about as I'm starting to see movement toward making some of these disability questions around access that we ask like more commonplace. That's like number one. What that makes me hopeful about exactly as you said, AJ, is this idea that does this now unlock job opportunities for people who historically have not been able to office spaces may not have been accessible to them, et cetera. I think still questionable because we're seeing new waves of layoffs, new waves of furloughs. We're seeing just our global economy really fragile in this moment. And so if it's like, if it's fragile for non-disabled people right now, who don't know if they're going to be in the next round of layoffs, who all of us are living in this period of uncertainty of like, we don't know how long a remote workforce is needed. Do we need the security people in the building? Do we need the, our office manager still? Do we need the people who make sure that our uh, supply closets are stacked? You know, and so if it's fragile for non-disabled people, it's even more fragile for disabled people. So I do feel hopeful that now that we have unlocked that remote working is possible. And the thing with access needs too is like, if I have access needs, I'm working on my own technology. I have my workstation set up that works for me, right? So I'm able to show up in a way that works best for me. I think to your second point around now disabled people are able to pass as non-disabled people, if that kind of like removes some of the stigma that happens during a hiring process. I kind of go back and forth on that point, you know, which is I know that my disabled body makes people uncomfortable. And what I feel, and this is me and my like progressive thinking, my thinking is I know that you're staring at my arm and I want to use that as an invitation for you to visit like why you feel uncomfortable and use that as a conversation or an invitation to have a conversation around your own deeply rooted beliefs around disability and what it means to have a disabled body and why do you think you feel sorry for me or why do you think you feel uncomfortable? So that's me on my advocacy side. But on the other side, what that means is yes, I can pass as a non-disabled person on a Zoom call. I can pass as a non-disabled person through the interview process. And you can Google. So passing is this idea that I can hide certain aspects of my marginalized identities or underestimated identities that make the people around me more comfortable. But what that does is it actually causes a little bit of harm to mean that I can't really show up as my full self. So it's kind of like two sides of the coin, which is if there is an opportunity to make it through an interview process, get the job offer, then talk about your access needs. That, of course, I think is kind of the system that we're working in right now, because we're still seeing so much stigma and discrimination show up in the hiring process, even if it's unconscious. I guess if I take a step back, if I'm seeing more disabled people get hired, and I'm seeing that 60% unemployment number go down, then that is cause for me for hope. 
But what my dream would be is that if I needed to pass as a non-disabled person to get that job offer, and I'm now kicking ass in your company, can we create space for me to show up as my full self? Because that's, I think, where we really unlock the full potential of what disabled people can actually do. Yeah, I think that really sums it up really well. Tiffany, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. It's kind of it for me on the question side. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up that you wanted to share with our audience before we conclude the episode? Sure. People will often ask me, like, what are some concrete things that I can do today to be a better ally to people with disabilities? And I guess I'll say four things. Normally my list is three, but the fourth is the most important. So I'll make it number one. So number one is now what I'm realizing is that all of the other things I was asking people to do were too soft. And so my number one ask, if you are a hiring manager or you are in a position of influence to get your company to prioritize disability employment, that would be like my number one thing. And I named off a ton of resources you can go to for questions around where to find disability talent. You can also find me personally at tiffanyu.com or across social media or even Diversibilities social accounts for more like resources and conversation around that. Then number two is I think in order to move forward, we also need to understand where we came from. So really understanding like disability, not only is it like the personal reflection of like, let me think back to like my earliest memories of when I saw a disabled person for the first time, or like when I saw ableism happen and what I did about it or didn't do about it, but also just history in terms of there's a documentary that's out right now called Crip Camp, which is free to view on YouTube. It's just an hour and a half And this is more specifically about disability rights in the U.S., but it's really disabled people talking about our own history rather than some non-disabled person prescribing and determining a narrative for us, which I think is what makes this documentary really powerful. And the documentary is about how a bunch of teenagers with disabilities met at a summer camp for people with disabilities, which then paved the way for them being like powerhouses to the longest nonviolent occupation of a federal building in U.S. history, which then led to the way of Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which then led to the passage of the 30th anniversary of the ADA, of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I think really just seeing when you can root yourself in a disability community, like magic, serious magic happens, which to me is like what diversity is about. It's like, what magic can we create? Whether it's on the advocacy policy making front, but anyway, I digress a little bit and just wanted to say like, just understanding history is important. And a lot of people don't realize this, but the disability rights movement started right here in the Bay area where I'm based. And we all know about Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement, but why doesn't the disability rights movement have that same level of coverage in what we're learning in schools? So number two is just learning more about history. Number three is what I call hashtag diversify your feed. At least here in the U.S., I think we're really waking up to the fact that racial injustice has been existing and we need to be better for our Black community but then it's also highlighting kind of the intersections of that. So I would say part of what this rewiring is, is we just need to see more disabled people and disabled media and disability representation on any of the feeds that that we're consuming content. 
And there's a documentary out right now called The Social Dilemma, which highlights that none of us are getting the same news, right? So if you have never interacted with a disabled person on any of your social feeds, chances are the algorithm is not giving you any disability content. So I think we need to be like intentional in terms of reorging our own algorithms to start to see more disability content. And then the fourth is a little bit of a shameless plug, but during COVID times, Diversability is not hosting in-person events, which was our bread and butter, but we've transitioned to an online community that is open for disabled and non-disabled people to really just continue the conversation. And I think it's just a really powerful place for me as a disabled person to find community and support. But for our non-disabled people, it's a great way for you to really better understand what conversations disabled people are having right now. It's almost like you're being a fly on the wall of like conversations that you may have been always curious about, but like didn't know how to ask. And so that's a good way to kind of just like dip your foot in a little bit. And I will say like our biggest presence is in the US. We have done partnerships in Canada. And of course, D30 was kind of one of our first global forays. But to really just see, I forget how many countries we had nominations from. I was going to guess, but I was like any number that I would put out there would be me making something up. But I was really impressed. And, and what it showed me was that there is really great work happening all around the world. Like where are the spaces that are allowing us to elevate and amplify those stories. And maybe that's what the future of diversity looks for as we start to think through what our global footprint will look like. But at least for now, and at least for me, I know there's still more work to be done in the US. And I at least just wanna get it right in the place where I live before I try and go out and like figure out how we can partner with organizations or other great initiatives that are happening globally to help amplify their work. Well, Tiffany, thanks again so much for taking the time to share your voice with us. You know, it's a topic that really is so important and impacts so many people. And I think, unfortunately, gets overlooked a lot of times in media uh, circles. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. And I wish you and Diversability all the best in the future. For sure. Thanks so much, AJ.